0: Adoption and foster care are, are close to our heart uh, as a church family, and we pray for God to raise up more families who would take seriously that call to adopt and to um, to, to, to liquidate the foster system of kids who don't have families and, uh, and to open their homes in such a way. I heard of, of one family one time uh, who um, they found and were made aware of... Uh, a little girl on the other side of the world and um, news came back as they were looking to adopt, news came back that this little girl had a, a pretty serious heart defect and um, you know, the heart's a really important thing in terms of our body isn't it? In fact all, all seasons of human history have, have really uh, used the heart as an idea that's synonymous with the core of who we are. Uh, you may not be aware, but the heart beats 70 times a minute, that's 100,000 times per day, and 40 million times a year, which uh, even during a single day, a ventricle pumps about 11,000 quarts of blood, which is 265 million quarts in a lifetime. And as they were made aware that this little girl had this heart defect, uh, they started doing some research and wondering what that meant. And uh, uh, a regular heart, which I am not a doctor, and I don't claim to be one, uh, but at the same time, a regular heart has this uh, this little thing right here that separates the the chambers, and this little girl's heart has a single vent- single ventricle, which means that there's a defect in this wall, and, and several other things, including one of them, which would be very confusing, and that the heart is totally flipped around and is a mirror image of the way that a normal human heart is, right? And... Uh, and upon hearing the news that, uh, that this little girl would have this heart defect, uh, the adoption agency said, are you, are you sure you want to do this? And they said, Absolutely. Not only are we going to do it, we want to move the process along quicker so we can get her here and get her the treatment that she needs, right? And, um, and so that, uh, that little girl... Uh, is one of the things that makes the story of First Baptist Church as a people uh, so awesome. We are a people filled with people who have stories. We are a family made up of people who have stories, just like we've just prayed for the Lofton story. Uh, This past week, our own little Sadie Mobley uh, had a heart catheterization that she does every year uh, because she is that little girl with that heart defect, and the Lord uh, brought her through that, and the doctor said things are looking good. And uh, if you if you don't like just looking at her in a picture, you can look right back there. Sadie, can you wave at me? Sadie, can you wave? Yep, there she is. She's even cuter in person. And uh, and so, but I I tell you that uh, because we do we celebrate uh, baby Paisley Calhoun. Right? Prayed for that child before she was born, and and she's as beautiful as ever now. Jay and Shana, Uh uh, proud parents there. We prayed for baby Jude, you know, the Wiregrass's own little Superman, uh, keeping up with him on Facebook. They're little miracles, and, and Sadie's one of our little miracles, and we're, we're thankful for that. And so we asked the question, how important is the heart? Well, to the Mobley family, uh, the heart's a really, really important thing. And to the rest of us, the heart is a really, really important thing. But we're not, when we talk about the heart uh, in the church setting, in the biblical setting, we're not just talking about the physical heart, are we? In fact, uh, we are often talking about the spiritual heart, right? And when we talk about the heart in terms of the spiritual heart, the heart's the center of the human life. It's the center of your personality and the control center for the intellect and the emotions and the will. If you've ever flown before, if you've ever driven past an airport, even Dothan Airport, you notice that there's a big tall tower that is uh, where the air traffic controllers sit, and they direct all of the very serious operations that go on in that airport, right? And if that airport, uh, if that air traffic control tower is ever uh, crippled or disabled in some way, then it shuts the entire airport down. This is the way that theologians want us to understand the human heart in, term, in a spiritual context, is that if anything ever happens to the heart, spiritually speaking, then the entire person is shut down. And the fact is, is that that's exactly what we've seen Ever since the first Sunday in January, when we decided to begin going through one book of Bible, one book of the Bible each Sunday. Uh, from Genesis all the way to today, doing First Samuel, we've seen that the heart of the problem is the problem of our hearts. This was the problem when Adam and Eve set out to define life in their own terms instead of God's. And their hearts became corrupt. This was the problem with Joseph's brothers as they sold him into slavery. It's the problem with Pharaoh as he drowned the children two years old and uh, the Hebrew children two years old and under in the Nile. It's the, the the problem with him enslaving the Hebrew people, and it's the it's the problem of Israel as they complained against God in the wilderness, and then even last week as we saw everyone in the Book of Judges doing what was right in their own eyes. You see, Proverbs 423 reminds us to keep our heart with all vigilance. For from it, this is the way the Bible speaks of the heart, flow springs of life. For from it flow springs of life. But there's a problem. And we've already seen it. Genesis through last week. Our wellspring's already contaminated, isn't it? Our hearts are already contaminated. Corrupted. We, we find out when we read the Bible that we are sinners who deserve the wrath of God. And we're separated from Him because of our corrupted hearts. So unlike the, the positivism that, that has been bought and sold in American culture as, as Christianity, it's, the problem with humanity is not that we don't follow our hearts enough. The problem is that we follow our hearts too much, that we trust ourselves too much. And we are spiritually dead. And because that that, uh, control center of our human heart is corrupted, then spiritually we are shut down. We are, like Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are unrighteous, Romans chapter 3 tells us. And so as the narrative of Israel's history continues to unfold in 1 Samuel, we're going to see God keep His promise to Israel as He has been week after week after week as we've studied the Old Testament. Even in the midst of the corruption and the horrific devastation of the book of Judges, God is still faithfully at work to help us understand how He is addressing the problem of our hearts. And so this morning we're going to look at uh, 1 Samuel, where the the little key phrase of who God is in 1 Samuel is that He is the God of the heart's. Now, originally, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, you need to know, they were one book, right? First and 2 Samuel in your English Bible were one scroll in the Hebrew Old Testament. Because of, but because of its length, they divided it into two sections in the uh, English translation. And so there are three characters in the book of 1 Samuel that the narrative revolves around. Samuel, King Saul, and King David. Now all three of them transition Israel from a group of tribes that are ruled by Judges into a united monarchy that will eventually unite under David. Now we don't really grasp how interwoven these historical books are uh, for Israel when we just read through them. If you're doing like I'm doing and you're reading through the Bible in, the, in a year and you move from one book to the next, you really have no no concept of the time frame that, that lapses in between those two books. And so we've been trying to point out how really a lot of these Old Testament books kind of interweave. We talked about last week and last Sunday night, which a lot of you welched on your debt. You You, you missed the question last Sunday morning and you... You didn't show up Sunday night, and so you need to go watch the Ruth service, uh, the Ruth sermon online, and comments. So I know you've uh, you watched it there on our website, uh, but uh, but even as we saw in the book of Ruth, that happened during the book of Judges, didn't it? Right. Well, did you know that Samuel was born during the period of Judges? You you may not have realized this, uh, but last week we talked about a judge named Jephthah. We called him Jeff, right? And Jeff was the kind of the tribal boss in the mountains who was a pretty effective military leader, but he was so unfamiliar with the God of Israel that he sacrificed his own daughter in an act of worship, right? You remember that story? Well, did you know that five years before Jephthah became judge of Israel, Samuel was born? Now, if you, if you are looking at 1 Samuel, you'll notice that the very first chapter of 1 Samuel begins by looking at a man named Elkanah and his wife Hannah, right? Well, that was five years before Jephthah Took his uh, judgeship over Israel. And that Hebrew scholars, uh, I'm sorry, it's 10 years. They, they date this birth about 10 years before Jephthah's leadership in Judges 11. So if you don't mind writing in your Bible, go over to Judges chapter 11. Judges chapter 11. And write above Judges 11, my little subheading says, Jephthah delivers Israel write same time frame as 1st Samuel 1 just or you can just write 1st Samuel 1 right there in the middle of that right right above uh, Judges chapter 11 verse 1 and then go back to 1st Samuel chapter 1 and write above 1st Samuel cha- chapter 1 verse 1 Judges 11 and it'll help you remember the time frame that you're dealing with here we kind of think well Judges ended and and uh and uh, the, the book of Ruth ends, and then 1 Samuel picks up. No, they were actually all interwoven together. And then we don't get that in 1 Samuel chapter four, uh, chapters 4 through 7, when the Philistines and the Israelites had this showdown at a place called Shiloh, have you ever asked yourself the question why the Philistines decided at that point in time to come up against Israel? Well, did you know that it was because this arrogant dude from Israel named Samson had tied the foxtails of 300 foxes together and put torches in the center of them and put them out in the Philistine fields, that he had had come into one of their cities and married one of their most beautiful women named Delilah, and that just recently he had taken out a bunch of their leaders at a house party. That's why they were so mad. And that's why they came up against Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And we don't, we don't get that, do we? we I, I'd never known that until this week as I was studying. And so these, these narratives are so interwoven together. And as we enter into 1 Samuel, the narrative shifts from the devastation of the book of Judges and the promise of the book of Ruth to the faithfulness of God to raise up a final judge and the first two kings of Israel in 1 Samuel. And so what we're going to see in 1 Samuel is a tale of two hearts. Not, not people, but Hearts. And we're going to begin with 1 Samuel chapter 1, going through chapter 3. Now you need to, once again, you need to go to 1 Samuel chapter 2, and beside uh, Hannah's prayer, which is the, the subheading there in my Bible, you need to write, key to the entire book. Key to the entire book, beside 1 Samuel chapter 2. Because chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, are the key to the entire book. It's why... It, it, there's really no other reason other than uh, it, it could have just said, "And Samuel was born, right, and was raised as a helper to the to Eli the priest in that time when the house of the Lord was at Shiloh." It could have just said that. Why does it go through this entire? uh story about elkanah and hannah and, and hannah's prayer before the lord and how eli thought she was intoxicated when she was sitting there and she was speaking before the lord and and she was moving her lips but no words were coming out And eli being a very ungodly man uh he was uh just kind of lazy in ministry and uh and and, and wasn't caring for this individual he was actually just judging her from a distance right um and so why, why go through that whole story? It's because her prayer in verses 1 through 11 are what is going to happen in the entire book. Because her prayer could be summed up perfectly by James chapter 4, verse 6, which says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You want to know what 1 Samuel is about? It's about God opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble. Beginning with Hannah, right here. What does God do? God hears her prayer. God answers her prayer. God gives her a son, and that son's name was Samuel. He gives grace to the humble. But then he opposes the proud, because Eli was a lazy priest. And Eli and his sons, they die. And the Lord raises up this young man, Samuel, because God is faithful like that. And even as the Israelites, you know what the Israelites do? Keep on going to uh, Israel, the, uh, chapters 4 through 6. Chapters 4 through 6. We know that Israel is very proud at this time, because here's what happened. Like I said, Samson had kind of stirred up the Philistines, and the Philistines were mad. And so they come into Shiloh, and they kind of have a, I think it was probably they made t-shirts, it'd be called the showdown at Shiloh, right? Because what happens is, the Ark of the Covenant was at Shiloh. And so they take the Israelites and say, oh, we got this, right? I mean, we heard about Samson and the out of the donkey, right? We... We heard about, uh, we, we've heard about what he did to you guys with the foxes, so here's what we're going to do. Philistines, you don't stand a chance, because we've got this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. Did you hear about the Ark of the Covenant? It stopped the Jordan River in its tracks. And so Israel, very pridefully, they marched the Ark of the Covenant out, and kind of like, mic drop, right? They Ark drop. They drop it in front of the Philistines, and they're like, boom. Nothing happens. And they're like... Boom! God, you do it, you know? And God's like, mm-mm. See, that's the first characteristic of a prideful heart. Prideful people try to use God as a tool rather than worship him as supreme. They take the art, and they're like, hey, hey, God, you do what we tell you to do. This is, uh, and so this is the art. You need to destroy our enemies, just like you did for Joshua. And God's like, hey, guys, I don't operate like that. Don't expect my blessing if you're not pursuing a relationship, right? Don't, don't, don't think that I'm some kind of magical talisman or this little uh, you know, little idol that, that can be provoked into uh, doing exactly what you want to be done. It doesn't operate like that. You, 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 can't, you can't know God. You can't experience His power. You can't understand the blessing and the life that He gives somebody unless... Unless you are in close communion with Him, unless you're walking by faith. If you are a prideful person, then one of the ways that you know you're a prideful person is by the way that you respond to God when struggles enter your life. If you immediately turn to God and say, I've been a good person. You owe me! That's exactly what the Israelites were doing. Except instead of going and doing an art drop in front of the Philistines, you're dropping your church attendance record before God, right? You're getting out your checkbook and saying, Look, at, I haven't missed a tithe, right? It doesn't operate that way. And prideful people think that God operates that way because, remember, what we choose determines who we are. And so if you choose to look at God in this way, then you'll slowly but surely become more and more blinded to his true character. And so we've got to be very careful, because as we're going to see, pride is very sneaky. And Saul is a very prideful man, and that's, the, that's who the Lord gives Israel as their king. You see, Israel's heart, even as they repent in chapter 7, which is an interesting fact about 1 Samuel chapter 7, uh, you know, we get, the, get the, the line, and come thou fount of every blessing, here I raise my Ebenezer. It comes from 1 Samuel chapter 7. Because Samuel, uh, after they repent, he raises up an Ebenezer to the Lord, which is a place of remembrance. But then in, in chapter 8, Samuel is old, and his sons are uh, disobedient. They pervert justice, and they're wicked. And so the people say, God, uh, uh, God give us a king, or Samuel, give us a king. And this is the second sign of a prideful heart: is trying to discern the will of God while treasuring the things of the world. Trying to discern the will of God while treasuring the things of the world. God gives them the kind of king that they deserve, which is Samuel. Now I'm going to take you to uh, to one of uh, one of the verses that gives me hope. Right, First Samuel chapter eight. Go to uh, First Samuel chapter eight, verse ten. Um. Oh please don't tell me I, I, didn't write it down. It's not First Samuel chapter eight verse ten. Um, oh there it is. It's in it's in First Samuel chapter nine. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, verse verse two. Chapter nine verse two. It, Samuel uh, he 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 uh, he he. The Lord says, "Go, give them a king." Go. There's a man in Benja, of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath son of Ephias, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, first king of Israel. And he was handsome, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And immediately I'm like, man, I can't identify with that, right? I'm not not like Saul. And as you continue reading, you're like, okay, well, it's a good thing I'm not like Saul, right? I mean, it's uh, because Saul was the people's king. But remember, what's the condition of Israel's heart? They're prideful. And so what God does is what God often does with us when we're prideful. He gives us what we want to see that there's, there's no life there. Because God is so committed to us depending on Him that He will honor your choice to give you what you want just so that you know that you chose wrongly. He will not shield you from the consequences of your choices because He wants you to understand how there is no life when you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. All right? There's no life apart from Him. And so he gives them Saul, and Saul ends up being a wicked king. And they don't realize that in begging for this king, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, uh, he tell, the Lord tells Samuel, He says, Obey the, obey the voice of the people and all that they say, say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. You see, in thinking that they could get what they wanted just by blending in with the nations around them, they were not just blending in, they were rejecting God. And they got the king that they wanted. And don't be fooled by the looks of this tall, handsome man. Chapters 13 through 15 reveal that Saul was a proud man who disobeys God. He won't admit when he's wrong, and he doesn't repent and honor God. All signs of a prideful heart. So God rips the kingdom away from him and gives it to someone else. Someone that will show us what God's heart looks like. And then in the rest of 1 Samuel, all throughout 2 Samuel, into 1 Kings chapter 2, it records the events of the second king of Israel, king david all right whereas saul was israel's chosen king david was god's chosen king where saul was a reflection of the prideful heart of the people of israel david was a reflection of the kind of heart that god is looking for from human beings from people who are trying to walk by faith david is an example of that so we need to ask the question What does a humble heart look like? But before we do that, let's just get a little bit of information about David. You wouldn't look at David like you did at Saul. You remember the story about Samuel going and choosing David? right? Samuel uh, goes to Bethlehem, and he meets a man named Jesse. Now, remember the way that the book of Ruth ended. Uh, Ruth ended with, um, with Ruth and Boaz conceiving a son, and his name was, who remembers? Obed. Yeah, that's right. Obed. And then Obed fathered Jesse, right? And then Jesse fathered David. But was he the oldest oldest son, middle son, or youngest son? Yeah, David was the youngest son, right? And so Samuel's, Samuel, even though he's a great prophet, even though he's a great judge, Samuel goes, and Samuel is looking for somebody like Saul. And he goes to Jesse's son Eliab, and he says, Oh, well, this must be the guy. Because look at him, he's debonair, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, and so he must be the guy. Well, he's not the guy. In fact, the guy isn't even there. He has to look, at, after Samuel gets a no from the Lord, he looks at Jesse, he says, you got any other kids, right? And he says, well, yeah, I've got my little snot-nosed, you know, shepherd boy in the field, it stinks, like, smells like sheep, right? You don't, you want him? Really, him? And he comes. And 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Look at that. Underline it. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. After the Lord passes on Eliab. This is, this is the verse that gives me hope. Because I'm not tall like Saul. I'm not good looking like Saul. I don't need to be tall or good looking like Saul. This is what I need to focus on. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel... Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Amen. Because I have rejected him. That's that's Eliab. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. A man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the what? The heart. And so David is anointed king, and we see the product in the rest of 1 Samuel. We see the product of what a humble heart looks like. Hannah's prayer indicated this very thing. The, The Lord God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. You want to see what grace given to humble people looks like? Read the rest of 1 Samuel. Because all of David's exploits and all of Saul's descending into madness are both what pride and humility will do to the human heart. It will do do to the human life. And so what does a humble heart look like? Well, first of all, a humble heart is fixated on the glory of God. A humble heart is fixated on the glory of God. And, and I'm just going to reference some things here. We're not going to go throughout every one of these stories, but what's David primarily known for? What are some of the things David's known for? Slaying Goliath, right? Do you remember what he said to Goliath about the source of his strength? He, David recognizes. He's like, oh yeah, you outmatch me. You, 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 are, you are far greater than I am. His brothers, say, his brothers look at David and say, you're an idiot. Do you not realize how big that guy is? And David looks at them and he says, are you, basically, are you going to let them slander God's name like he's doing? Are you going to let Goliath transgress the glory of God like that? And so David was, was, was welling up with a love for the renown and the reputation of God, and that's why he acted. It wasn't because he wanted to, you know... Uh, give us a pop cultural reference of like facing the giants one day you know what I mean? he wasn't looking to do that he was, he was concerned for the glory of God but then also what else is David known for Bathsheba well we'll get to that next week <laughs> you have to come back for that what else what, what other book did David write or, or, yeah he, he didn't write all of them but he wrote the majority of the psalms or a lot of the psalms you know, the Psalms were, uh, forgive the reference, but the Baptist hymnal of Israel, right? I mean, you got the, or the celebration hymnal. We got the celebration hymnal before us, right? It was, the, it was the, the worship guidebook for Israel. David is not just fixated on the glory of God in this zealous, you know, military type of way. He is, he is the meditative, reflective. He has his spiritual eyes fixed on the glory of God, and he writes the Psalms in that heart. But we also see that a humble heart is not just fixated on the glory of God, but they are loyal to godly allegiances, loyal to godly allegiances. One of the things that is remarkable about the end of the narrative in 1 Samuel is the fact that David has multiple opportunities. When Saul is chasing after him, trying to kill him, David has multiple opportunities to kill him first. Why, doesn't he? Why does he only go and and snip off a portion of Saul's robe and even then repents for that? That's because he identifies Saul as the Lord's anointed. Now, David had been anointed as king. But he still recognizes that as long as Saul is alive, that Saul is the king of Israel. And he will not transgress the authority that God has put over him. That's what a humble heart looks like. But then also, and I challenge you men to go and to read the story the stories about David and his friend Jonathan. Jonathan was Saul's son. And you remember, ladies, last week I told y'all that you'd be challenged by the friendship between Naomi and Ruth, even though they were mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. That when Naomi had renamed herself bitter, Ruth took her by the hand and led her to encouragement, led her to hope. Right? And I, I mentioned that, ladies, you need friends like that. And guess what, men? David and Jonathan are a testimony that we need friends like that too. You need a friend who, when you can't lift your head, they're going to lift your head for you. They're going to help you, help you see Jesus. They're going, to, they're going to speak truth to you. They're going to keep you accountable. Because as, uh, as, we, as we'll see next week, in the story with Bathsheba, David stops being accountable. Jonathan's dead. David's king. He gets lazy that their accountability was was no longer there. But in this at the end of First Samuel, David and Jonathan, they, they it, it says that their souls were knit together. Do you have friends like that, man? Well I, I, I can't no. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> hey, let me tell you, this shapes my life as much as any other Relationship that I have, and we think, well, I, I, I'm married. I've got my wife. That's that's the only friend I need, right? But men, you need male friends. You need male friends who will lead you to Jesus. You need male friends that will slap you in the face spiritually or physically, maybe if you need that, right? You, you you need friends that will challenge you to to be what God has called you to be. And if you don't have those friendships in your life, if you're not and especially men if you're not being intentional to do that with each other then you're headed down the same road as David was. And so men cultivate these friendships. Ladies cultivate these friendships. And we we just to plug it. This is what small groups are for. In Sunday school, this is why we talk about doing life together beyond the walls and the campus of this church family. It, we we need each other. We we talk about family here because we really do look at this as family. And and you cannot we cannot just settle for cultural manhood when biblical manhood is god's design for you you can't just settle for cultural femininity when when god's design for you as a woman is to be in a relationship with other women and you nurture one another you you encourage one another you keep each other accountable men you need that in your life too and yes you should have that kind of relationship but if you if you have a, a godly spouse you should absolutely have that kind of relationship But there will be seasons in your life where you will be able to fake it in front of your spouse and somebody who knows you that's of the same gender will call you on it. And so don't don't raise your sails to head towards isolation because in doing so, you're headed to destruction. Cultivate these kind of friendships within the body of Christ. But then the last thing that we see about a humble heart is a humble heart repents. Notice that I said when, when David is a man after God's own heart which means that Saul shows us the kind of heart that Israel had David shows us the kind of heart that God wanted Israel to have right I didn't say that that David was perfect because David was far from perfect Second Samuel chronicles 1 Samuel chronicles the rise and fall of Saul and the rise of David Second Samuel chronicles the fall of David and we're going to look at that more next week but what you're going to see is because we see it in his own words in the Psalms is that a humble heart repents and so I want to ask you today how can it be that the heart that God wants us to have is not perfect because we looked a few weeks ago at the book of Leviticus and God giving his perfect law to shape his people to make them fit for his presence we've continually made the case that the the choice to follow God's commands brings life and the choice to disobey brings death And so are we now changing the game and saying that God is somehow okay with our disobedience? That David's still a man after God's own heart, heart, even though he's going to become an adulterer and a murderer later on in his future? No. You see, God knows we're not going to be perfect. So He has made it possible for Him to maintain His perfect standard and for us to be given grace and mercy even in our disobedience. You see, the door of salvation opens not by our obedience to the entirety of God's law, but the door of salvation opens by your obedience to one command, and that command is to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That is the one command, Acts chapter 16, verse 31. That is the one command that God says, follow this, put your faith in Jesus, and the entirety of my son's righteousness, the perfection of his life, will be credited to you. That's what opens the door of salvation. So that means that where you are disobedient, Christ is obedient. Where you are imperfect, Christ is perfect. Where you are unholy, Christ is holy. Where you have failed, Christ has conquered. And all of this is so that we can have a heart like kids. But the first step is to believe that he has done just that for us. But I recognize that many people in this room have done that. They've already taken that step of faith and they've believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is, I want to tell you how this invitation is not just for those who need to trust in Jesus as their Savior. This is also a challenge for you who've been walking with the Lord to cultivate humility. Because the fact is, is that you're hardwired for pride. You realize that? That's why pride is so sneaky. Because you are bent towards pride. Pride. And so if you don't nurture humility, just like if you don't nurture contentment, if you don't, if you don't fix your eyes on Jesus intentionally and nurture it with the truth of God's Word, then guess where you're going to end up? Prideful. <laughs> You've got to nurture that humility. So how do you nurture hu- that humility? Just like David. Live a life of worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Live your life with a singular focus. Because listen, it's more important than sports, it's more important than school, it's more, than, more important than your work. Having that part of your life settled that I'm going to live for the glory of God in my sports, I'm going to live for the glory of God in my school, I'm going to live for the glory of God in my work, that is the core of who we are. That is what God has redeemed us for. You want to know why God sent Jesus to die for us? It's so that our hearts could be taken from being fixated on ourselves to go and be fixated upon the Lord Jesus live for his glory worship god but then initiate these accountability relationship with uh, relationships with godly friends uh, students you've been in an encounter this weekend and you've met new people and you've maybe met people that you go to school with or you have had this experience together where you prayed together you sought the lord together this is not a time when you leave here to let that falter be intentional about cultivating that point your friends to jesus Make an intentional commitment to the people sitting beside you, the people that you've been in your host homes with this weekend. Make an intentional commitment to them to point them to Jesus all throughout this week. You like to to text text encouragement, godly encouragement to one another each morning. Tell your friends how they can pray for you. Pray for each other out loud. That's how you nurture humility, not just in yourself, but in your friends as well. And teenagers, it's not, for, not just for you. I pray that you would see us as adults doing this very same thing through the relationships that we're cultivating together because that's what we are as a church family. But then lastly, repent of pride. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the fact is, is that we will either humble ourselves before God or we will be humbled before God. And so no matter what season of life that you're in, if you're living in opposition to God, if you're living in pride, then today is a day that God is calling you to repent. And so as we come to this time of invitation, as we're, as our, our um, Late View Worship Band is going to come and we're going to do a song of invitation together. We're going to sing that song. If you need to repent of pride, I want you to do that during that song. If you need to come because you've trusted Christ this weekend, you need to make that decision public, I want you to come do that this week, at this at this time when we're when I'm down front here in a moment. If you, if you want to make that decision, if you want to take that step and follow Christ, then now is the time to do that as well. But One way or another, whatever decision you need to make, if you need to talk to somebody about it, I'll be right down front. But this invitation is not just for those who need to repent of sin or confess the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an invitation for every single one of us to nurture that humility and to humble ourselves before Almighty God. Let's pray together.